a Podcast One production. This is a tale of two cities, Las Vegas and Detroit. Welcome to CS Las Vegas, the largest startup event on the planet. Welcome to the Biden press conference. The Consumer Electronics Show has become the premier event where all of the automakers come and brief the press and the public about all the nifty new things their cars can do, like the brand new all-electric M-Byte from Chinese automaker Byton, or Hyundai's Elevate, a car that can rise up on four legs to climb over any obstacles in its way. It's all about the future at CES, and all of the automakers are there. Now, a week later, Detroit hosted the North American International Auto Show. That used to be the most important event on the automotive calendar. This year, well, Mercedes, BMW, Audi, they all decided to give it the skip. And the companies that did show up, eh, Toyota took the opportunity to relaunch their Supra. That's a car that they haven't made for 17 years. As for the rest of it, as near as I could tell, Sally Deminks and I were the only Australian journalists at the show. The show seemed empty of both people and purpose. Las Vegas, that's all about looking forward. Detroit had the feeling of looking back at a world that's rapidly disappearing. I think the whole industry is in a position that, you know, we have to operate with uh, one foot in the present and one foot in the future, whether it's here we are at an auto show doing what we have to do. At the same time, we might be running to a meeting on artificial intelligence or, you know, some mobility issue, autonomous vehicles. So uh, that that's what I, I mean. But in a, in a, you know, maybe a micro sense, I think at auto shows like this, We've got to be thinking, what are we doing today to support this show, support this city, while also looking to the future, is this the right place to be doing these things? Today, I firmly believe that auto shows have a really important role for all of us. This is, in Detroit in particular, if I could, this is the Motor City. This has been the Motor City for over 100 years. It should always be the Motor City, and that's the present that I'm talking about. And this show is reimagining itself. And in the future, it probably should look a little bit differently, but you gotta work with today to get to tomorrow. To be honest, Detroit feels a bit lost. And that's telling us that the biggest industry of the 20th century, transportation, is about to be completely transformed. It's already happening. We manufacture two cars a second. In 15 years, we will manufacture the next billion cars. Everyone, everyone at CES, everyone in Detroit, everyone everywhere knows that the car is changing, but no one, no one at CES, no one at Detroit, no one in Japan, no one in Korea, no one in Germany knows what that car is changing into. So what? will the car become over the next billion seconds? 
Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to a new series, The Next Billion Cars. Yes, you're still listening to The Next Billion Seconds. Think of this as a show within the broader channel. It's a show about the future, a very specific future, the future of transportation. We're all on the move. How we do that, that's what's fundamentally changing. And we will be talking to the folks who are doing their best to survive, thrive, and drive in this change. Now, joining me on this series is automotive expert and designer Sally Domingues. And Mark, one of the folks who knows things are changing is Marcy Clevin, Ford's head of mobility. She knows things are changing and she had a lot to say about it. I've been at Ford for um, 35 years, and actually before that I worked um, for AT&T for a few years on the Ford account. So I've been around a long time, and um, I would have to say this is the biggest step change I've seen. Who ever thought Ford would be having products and services that weren't vehicles? So Sally, things are changing rapidly. We know this. We know that the auto industry is confronting some unprecedented challenges. Let's let's just walk through this list. Because the interesting thing about this is that these challenges aren't even necessarily technological. In a lot of cases, they're cultural. You and I sat down with one of your friends who's just a lost Vegas resident last week. We had breakfast with him and he said, you know, I'm thinking about buying a car but I don't know that I want to because I think what a car is going to be is going to be so different in a couple of years that I don't know that I want to lock myself into a car. And he's driving, what, an 11 or 12-year-old car right now? Yeah, he is. And he's uh, not a guy who needs to wait to buy. He could buy at any time. But he senses that there's a shift and he doesn't want to be left behind. And I think it's a sensation that many people are feeling when they're looking at buying their next car. Plenty of people aren't, but I was kind of surprised. Um, he's just a regular dude, a restaurant owner, and he's sort of waiting. What's next? And then there's the young people, the youth today. And you have two 18-year-olds in your house neither of whom are interested in getting a driver's license. Now, Mark, I can't get my head around this. I have offered to drive them to the registry and neither of them are interested. They say it's so easy to just book a Lyft or book an Uber or get a friend that they actually, boy and a girl, have not <laughs> gone and got their license and they could have got it two years ago. And you know, we had this moment. So when I was in Las Vegas, I had rented a car and I picked up Two of my friends, Sally was one of them. My friend Genevieve, who's also been on this show, was another one. Both of them, their first reaction when they got into the car with me was, I didn't know you could drive. And it's because I don't own a car. But I've had a license since I was 16 years old because, of course, I did. Because that's what you used to do. You learned to drive as soon as you could. And if we're now seeing a time and a day when kids are like, meh. What is that telling us? I mean, I feel like you were always a bit mad. I never thought you had the remotest interest in cars. I think five years ago, we could have said, yeah, you know, cars, yeah, whatever. And I'm I'm definitely a reluctant driver, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't enjoy the experience the same way that you enjoy the experience of the car. I'm really glad they exist. I'm really glad that I know how to drive. But what we've seen over the last five years is that in terms of technology, cars are the most interesting area in technology now. The space is absolutely exploding. You know, we had the, the president of Ford during his opening address at Detroit say that we are in the middle. This is Jim Hackett said we are in the middle of the most profound shift in transportation since Ford was founded. And Ford was founded, what, 1903, 1901, yeah. something yeah. like that, well over 100 years ago. Let's go through a couple of the reasons why that shift is so important. All right. 
As everyone knows, autonomous vehicles, and we'll probably call these AVs mostly, and you're going to get a little confused. Sometimes we'll say EVs for electric vehicles. Sometimes we'll say AV for autonomous We're vehicles. We're going to be very specific with our vowels so that those two things are really clear. We will. And why are we in this headlong drive to autonomous vehicles, Sally? I'm, I'm really interested, Mark, at how many vehicle manufacturers are using safety as the number one reason for autonomous vehicles. You know, I thought more congestion management, um, town planning issues, you know, it hadn't actually, ridiculously perhaps, occurred to me that safety was driving autonomous. Does that sound crazy? But when we heard the head of Volvo say that by 2020, no one in a Volvo will be seriously injured. Right. No one in a new Volvo will be seriously injured anymore. So if you buy a Volvo from 2020, their commitment is that the car is going to have so many autonomous and safety features Mm. that you will not be injured or killed. And the organisations such as PAVE, who we heard at um, CES talking about, you know, the driving force behind AVs is safety and completely reducing road fatalities. Okay, so there is that thing that says that the more that we can get the computers to drive, and we will be going into this in detail, but the more that we can get the computers to drive, the safer it is for everyone on the road. Okay, so that's one huge area, and everyone is aware that these these driverless cars are coming. But then there's another huge thing, which is the transition away from fossil fuels, right? We are now seeing more different kinds of ways of powering cars, and of course, electric vehicles are in the lead of that, but there's also hydrogen. What else is going on here? Well, you know, I'm always interested at how biodiesels have fallen away. Do you remember only about five years ago how algae biodiesel was the new thing fueling the aircraft industry and perhaps heading to cars? That seems to have dropped off. Hydrogen is still there. And of course, Toyota and other car companies have been playing with hydrogen for 10 years or more. And then EVs, obviously, are what most consumers consider the alternative fuel. So we have, again, two huge transitions. And then once you have a driverless vehicle, and it may be using electricity. What does that mean for performance? It's funny because Tesla, of course, has its ludicrous mode, which is really all about performance in an electric vehicle. But are people going to care? You care because you're a performance race car driver. You care about performance. Is everyone else going to care? I do care, and I do think people care and I think this is the quandary we face because if you've grown up and every launch at Detroit um, back this up, if you've grown up with the throb of an engine, right, you've got vibration, throb, grunt, call it what you will, but you've got like, ah, happening in an engine, now we have whirr. So like, at what point does a little robotic whirr replace throb and how do we do it so that the sexiness of the drive continues because, okay, one day they won't be driven by us, but in this next 15 years, at least five to seven of those, I'm still behind the wheel and I still want some guts with my performance. And Tesla has it in the pure rush of speed, but every EV struggles with what is the noise to replace the throb. And that's, I guess, a more philosophical question that we will take a look at. But then there's this other big transition about transportation as a service industry. And you and I saw the CEO of Volvo America get up on stage and talk about Volvo subscription model, where you pay them $600 a month for a subscription. And it's not the same thing as a lease. And you have everyone sort of running around talking about this. And of course, some of that's a reaction to the fact that you can hand Lyft, which is a ride sharing company, $300 a month and basically get unlimited lifts out of them. So we have this transition away from ownership. This is this idea that you're not going to own the car. You're not going to need to own the car. 
Is that an existential threat to the car industry? Because if you're sharing everything, including the ownership and the subscriptions, aren't you going to need heaps less cars? Well, I mean, we have heard from many of the major automakers talking about they are now a service industry. I mean, what a massive shift. We've gone for, we will provide cars for individual owners, all about the individual. Now we're a service industry. I mean, how does that even work? I don't even understand how that looks, and I reckon they don't either. And buying up all the scooter companies or buying up all the last mile mobility services still doesn't make you a service provider because you are a car maker. What are you going to do? I mean, there's an argument that if the cars are more utilised, that they'll wear down faster and you'll have to make more, but I don't buy it. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to that sort of taxi mode where a taxi does need to be replaced every sort of five to seven years because they're driven 24 hours a day, but then they also standardise on particular models that can handle that. Okay, and then if we're making a billion cars... That's a lot of waste right there, not just in the production, but in the recycling, everything that's associated with making a billion cars. How do we start to confront the fact that cars themselves are both freedom and terror, that they really can wreck the planet just as much as they offer us freedom. Well, again, we've heard a bunch of the manufacturers trying to plead the case that the cars that they're coming up with for the near future are actually going to help more than they hinder. And this is another huge turnaround. I mean, we had Hyundai with their Elevate model saying, oh, you know, in a natural disaster, this car will sprout legs and clamber through the wreckage rescuing people. Um, And we have uh, Honda making little happy robots that follow you around, little um, all-wheel rugged terrain vehicles that will follow you around in a fire, follow you around in a natural disaster and help out. So there's, along with this where service providers is this massively new altruistic outlook that in fact now the automakers are going to help everybody, that these cars are going to help more than they hinder. And this is a question that I know is of, of real concern to you, which is what happens to the driver Is this a future that has drivers in it? Because a lot of people, and I wouldn't say that I'm really one of them, but there are a lot of people who enjoy driving. Of course, there are a lot of people that enjoy driving. It's thrilling and fun. And why shouldn't you? You know, Um, and, and, you know, we've seen a lot of car companies look at taking that into the virtual reality zone and providing it in some other form. That's great. Doesn't work for me, Mark. I actually want to be cornering when I'm cornering. Right. You know what I'm saying? You don't want to just but, be wearing a headset having fake cornering going on. Not particularly. That just makes me nauseous in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I feel like uh, there'll be rebels. There'll be people who absolutely refuse to buy in on the autonomous driving. And how will they fit? If there's this utopia of this driverless highway and everyone's moving along and there's zero fatalities, how does the Maverick and the rebel in their little Mustang Shelby that we just saw taken out the most street legal fastest machine ever that driver isn't necessarily going to vacate the road just because the rest of you aren't driving and uh, you know and this is where we get into again comes back into culture and the culture of the car and the culture of the driver and then all the laws and and will we be able to successfully coexist but there's another side of this too which is that what we're seeing at CES and at Detroit is that it's getting easier and easier for people to spin up their own car companies. You know, you had the early age. So 100 years ago, there were lots of small car makers. A lot of them consolidated into General Motors, into other companies. A lot of them fell by the wayside, but we're now 
post-Tesla seeing this renaissance, and I'm now sort of walking around a trade show and finding all of the pieces I need to make an autonomous vehicle or to make an electric drivetrain. So I could, if I wanted to hang my shingle as a car company, and will I be able to at some point design my car from scratch, have it printed somewhere in the go pick it up? What does that mean for a car manufacturer? Well, you know, I think particularly since so many of these manufacturers are also looking at micro-transport solutions and personal transportation, that now looks more like a Segway or a scooter than it ever did before. So you can't make your own car yet, Mark. You just can't. There are too many design laws in place. However, if you want to whip up a scooter or a little semi-street legal like platform that whips you along in any direction, yep, all the bits are there. And I mean, that that could be, it's a bit like drones right now, like the sky is crazy. Will the pavements and the roads get crazy? All right. And then we come to this very interesting final question, which as you point out, you know, we need things to be street legal. And it may very well be that we'll start settling on particular software platforms. And, you know, we've seen this happen with the smartphone. You know, people have said, that a Tesla is a smartphone on wheels. Well, if it really is, then is there going to be a platform? Is there going to be something like an iOS or something like an Android that becomes the dominant software platform? And of course, we heard Marcy Cleveren talk about the need for open platforms in the future. I love the fact that you brought this up because it also plays to another thing that we're doing differently at Ford. And, um, and I'm smiling because it's very different, which is we believe the future is open and uh, the OEM world is very proprietary. And so through the use of um, another product we have called the Transportation Mobility Cloud, we bought a company called Autonomic. We co-developed that with them um, and then we ended up acquiring the company. So along with Spin, they're in our, our portfolio here. And we're building this out for everybody. So taking city data like you and I were talking about that can be collected. So think of it as the glue. City data goes there, connected vehicle data goes there. Partnership data goes there. So if you're a car wash, you would love to have access to millions of vehicles. You might love to have access to city data. So with everybody's permission, obviously um, consent and transparency will rule the day. But allowing um, the Transportation Mobility Cloud to kind of be the glue where everything can go so we can create value together, including inviting other OEMs to join. These problems are so big, it will take a village. So, Sally, when a car is all about connectivity... Who is it connecting to? Well, as we saw at CES, a bunch of them are connecting to Alexa. And then some of the other manufacturers are buying in-car purchasing software to sort of make their own version. I worry about this because, um, yeah, who is it connected to? Who owns the data? Who gets to tell us where we're buying our stuff? And also, how hackable is that? All right. We've laid out some of the landscape for you. We're going to go to the break on the next Billion Cars with Sally Domingues, and then we're going to bring in our third correspondent, a car designer who is working at the coalface. You're listening to the next Billion Cars. We will be right back. And we're back on the next Billion Cars, and here I am with correspondent Sally Domingues. So, Sally... We have a third person joining us in this series who has been working at the coalface as a car designer. Mark, I'm so excited to hear from Drew Smith because he is there. He is doing it. We've got a classic car designer who's now working to integrate, as I understand it, tech from a smaller company into one of the big players. Drew, tell us a bit about what you're doing without giving anything secret away. 
<laughs> For sure. So I currently work as a design research and strategy consultant in the automotive industry. And it's been super interesting to hear just how many times you've both mentioned culture, right? And the importance of culture. And really, my main job is to understand how to shift these kind of behemoths from being kind of large, almost like the Titanic into something much more nimble and really trying to understand whether that is even possible, right? Because that's an open question for us at this point. So Drew, are you looking at cars specifically or are you looking at smaller personal modes of transport or are you overviewing all the transportation options right now? So my purview kind of looks at at the car and everything around the car, right? So we're talking about um, what is the mobility ecosystem into which a car, which is produced by a traditional automotive manufacturer, now has to play a part. Okay, so when you talk about that, are the car manufacturers comfortable with the idea that they don't really have cradle-to-grave control of the relationship with the consumer who's buying the car? Because that's always been the deal, right? You buy a car from a particular maker, you have the deal with that particular maker. You, you may even have a lifetime relationship where you always buy the new model from that maker. And what you're talking about is something very different where they're just sort of slotting in at a particular point inside, inside this larger mobility ecosystem that's got lots of pieces from lots of people. Right, absolutely. And I think it's one of the reasons why you see so many manufacturers struggling to make convincing plays in the service space, right, in providing mobility as a service. Traditionally, automotive manufacturers have operated on the basis of unit sales. You know, the higher the unit sales, the better you perform as an organization. Um, you know, one of their primary metrics is customer acquisition. How many new customers do you bring to a brand? Obviously, once you start playing in the service arena, you start looking at a very different set of metrics. You start looking at how much value you can extract from a customer over the lifetime of your relationship with them. Right. And if we think about the primary interface that most customers have with a with a manufacturer, with an automotive brand, it's a dealership. And I'd like you two to tell me about the last time you had a great experience at a car dealership. That's true. I have not been to a car dealership personally or professionally for about 20 years. And I don't go to car dealerships, I actually. think for me, it's going to be a, probably the last time was when I dropped off because I'd leased a Volvo before I moved to Australia, so 15 years ago. Oh, and you're right. I have a lease. What am I talking about? Last time. I, do, I forgot I had a lease. <laughs> I did briefly go into a car dealership long enough to get a lease, <laughs> and then I left, and I've never been back. <laughs> right, and obviously that experience was so memorable. <laughs> that's, that's kind of scary. Okay, so Drew, how much of this is landing on your plate? I mean, design is now no longer how does it look, how does it drive, where are the things on the dashboard? Design is now this much more comprehensive sense of you're designing an economic system, you're designing the vehicle, the manufacturing. I mean, where, what, what is this new world? Back up, back up. How does it look still matters. We're still yeah. human. We still care. Now you can proceed, Drew. I was just a little traumatized there. He's a car designer, Mark. Yeah, Come no, on, I'm man. not saying that none of that matters. <laughs> I'm saying that it's now a piece of a much, much bigger story that that is landing on your plate. Designers are designers of environments now. Right. And, and I think uh, it's one of the biggest challenges that we see across automotive manufacturers and, and design teams within automotive manufacturers is that they're having to shift their frame of reference from design 
designing one product, um, typically from from the point of view of like a creative director, a creative overseer who has a vision that wants to push that out into the world and, you know, hopes that that creative vision kind of meets the emotional needs, if you like, of the marketplace. We're now having to, having to, I guess, see design departments become much more porous, right? To go out and explore the world in a much more nuanced and detailed way to understand how to not just make a product fit into somebody's life in an emotional way, but to fit in in a practical way, but also to fit into the context in which that customer lives, right? So what is their urban environment? What are the constraints that that urban environment is going to place on that product once they start using it? And this is a really radical shift. I mean, I guess, and part of that urban environment is, as in the case of your 18-year-olds, that they're going to want to use the car to have the availability of the car without having any of the constraints of the ownership around that car, that they're going to want to be able to sort of summon it as needed. Yeah, and in fact, they have no emotional connection. Like, really, what they're looking for is service that's efficient and economical. And, and, and that's a different type of person to, say, someone who's commuting every day in a driverless vehicle um, for, say, an hour and a half still, who actually requires uh, an environment inside that car that is conducive to work or rest or whatever it is they're going to do inside that. But that actually has meticulous design decision-making within it because the environment and the experience is so much more important. I mean... We're quite split, aren't we, on um, the vehicle that is getting those 18-year-olds from A to B, they don't really care, they just want to get there, versus a commuter autonomous vehicle. One of the things I think you see within uh, certain kind of OEMs is that it's kind of the classic thing that that Clayton Christensen describes in The Innovator's Dilemma, which is that the the kind of the disruptive innovations come from the places you least expect it and the places that tend to have the least credibility with the established players in the marketplace and really what micromobility is doing is providing a proliferation of options within well-developed urban centers that all of a sudden make owning a car more of a burden than than it's worth so here in the city that i live in uh i I'm a petrol head, like I'm an avowed petrol head. I bought a car as soon as I moved to this city. Three months later, I'm getting rid of it, right? I no longer want to own a car. Okay, wait, the car designer is getting rid of his car? Don't get me wrong. I still have a classic in storage, but... The vehicle that I bought to be my day-to-day commuter, my run around to take me to Ikea or the garden center or whatever, I'm getting rid of it. It's just too much of a pain to maintain and own in the city that I live in. Okay, and and the thing is, and, and you're in a city that is a car center, that is a car capital, that is in a lot of ways should be geared around the car. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is one of the really interesting uh, kind of cultural aspects of this. You know, we're still dealing with organizations that operate on the basis of a company town, right? There are, there are cities that are built around the design and manufacture of a particular product. And in many cases, the worldview of the people that work for these organizations sometimes doesn't extend terribly far beyond the borders of that city. And, you know, as we move into kind of this, this service provision age, this age of mobility, um, understanding the context for which you're designing these new products and services is absolutely critical. So a large part of my job is really about getting uh, these design teams to look up 
and to look much more broadly to understand that there's a bigger picture that we now need to understand. Drew, you were talking about uh, car companies looking for the value that customers will bring in this new age. Um, We've looked at a lot of EVs and autonomous vehicles at the show that have these huge screens, 42-inch, 48-inch, massive, whopping great screens. Are you sensing that there are going to be ads thrown at us 24-7 as these car manufacturers grapple with how to monetize the vehicle that is no longer owned? Oh, look, I think as people see their traditional business models torn up in front of them, they're going to be looking for any possible revenue stream uh, they have available to them. And I think it's why you see such nervousness um, from some manufacturers about buying into the technology platforms provided by companies like Google or like Apple. Um, because the thing that they're concerned about is their ability to monetize the data that the vehicle collects. Right, because they don't want to end up like a smartphone maker, which essentially when you put Android on your phone, then all of your revenue is take collected by Google because they get all the data and then you basically only get a hardware sale. Or we start looking like Blade Runner, basically. Right, exactly. Then... What you're describing in your career now as someone who has an emphasis on design is someone who's now wearing more hats than ever, just as the industry that you're in is wearing more hats than ever. How do we take an industry that is thoroughly mature, that has been around, that was the center of the industrial economy for a century, and now start to make it wear all of these hats? Oh, I mean, that's the million dollar question. It really is the million dollar question. And it's and it's the thing that myself, my colleagues across companies are, are trying to, to work out at the moment. And, you know, one of the I guess one of the ways, you know, speaking as a user centered designer, one of the ways in which we can do this is to start reorient these start to reorient these organizations, um, not about kind of designing a product from the business out, but understanding the needs of the customer or the user and, and working back in. And, and, and the customer becomes kind of this unifying focus point for how we approach the design and development of our products and services. You know, it's really common within um, uh, OEMs, the big car manufacturers, to have um, design teams or engineering teams broken down by individual component, right? So you'll have an engineering team that works on headlamps. You'll have an engineering team that works on ambient light in the interior. You'll have an engineering team that works on sound or HMI, human machine interface, what we call. Um, And to provide a good customer experience, to provide something that enables you to build that customer lifetime value, all of these people have to speak together. But at the moment, they don't. It's very, very rare that there's a unifying force. So one of the things that we try is to get everybody to orient around the needs of the customer and then orient our functions and our features around those needs. Drew, I've got a question for you as a declared rev head and a car designer who's come up through classic car design, you know, love of car thing. What is your immediate and, say, 15-year want for the future of cars like as someone who loves to drive as someone who is a classic car guy what do you want to see for you for your personal transport i want to see the death of cars in cities uh i feel like the 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 role of cars within our urban environment i I think they're, they're long past their use by date now and i think we have such a wealth of alternative options that that really suit dense urban environments a hell of a lot better 
Um, I still think that there is absolutely a role for kind of human autonomy, i.e. the ability for me to drive my own car. And there's a really interesting document out there called the Human Driving Manifesto. And it's written by a guy called Alex Roy. And it opens with an image of a steering wheel saying like out of my cold dead hands right so i think there is still absolutely a role for that personal autonomy but it's about redressing the balance i think so much of our planning decisions have been based around the accommodation of the car as opposed to the accommodation of the people who actually need to move around a city for the two of you i'm gonna pose something to you this is a step change and we hear it from everyone You know, we're going from one definition of what transport is to another definition. Specifically, we're going from a product to a service. Like, that's the big thing. Now, any company that makes it through that transition, if any of the existing companies make it through, is not going to be the same company. And that this is kind of where we... We're staring into an abyss here, you know, I mean, it feels to me like the car companies don't know where they're going. And because they don't know where they're going, they can't get there. I don't agree. And it's it's an abyss at all, Mark. I think it's an opportunity. It's a wave and you can surfer or you can drown. But uh, I I completely agree with Drew's vision. I think that um, there are huge parts of our culture that do not need cars, that we can come up with much better, cleaner alternatives are more efficient, that are safer. But at the end of the day, why shouldn't we have it all? Why shouldn't there be dedicated manufacturers that make incredible driving experiences with various fuels or whatever it is for the open road? And why aren't there new solutions for other areas? Like, I think you can have it all. I don't necessarily think this is Armageddon. So I, I was recently at the presentation of the Volvo 360C concept, and it was, it was probably one of the more interesting and provocative autonomous vehicle concepts that was presented in, in, in 2018. Not so much because of the, the, the design itself, but more the story and the service that they were kind of proposing around, around the concept. And somebody kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, yeah, but nobody buys their plane ticket from Airbus. Nobody buys their ticket to ride from Boeing. And sure, you know, there are some of us, some plane geeks who might say, oh, well, I'll I'll try and book my flight to get on a 787 or an A380. But the reality is, you know, we go for the provider that gives us the cheapest price. We go for the provider that gives us the highest level of service. You know, whatever it is that, you know, whatever need it is that we're, we're, we're looking to meet. And I think that is the thing that presents the existential threat to the automotive manufacturers is that they become relegated to the position of hardware manufacturers for other people to provide services on top of. You know, when uh, Jaguar announced that uh, it had a deal, I think it's with Waymo to provide, or it's Uber, sorry, to provide a bunch of their iPace electric cars, everybody was saying, well, this is amazing news for Jaguar. And I'm like, yeah, it's even better news for Uber because they get this luxury product, but they actually provide the service that makes the difference to the life of the consumer. But the difference is, I guess there is, we, we have a lot of travel that is A to B, get me there as quickly and efficiently as possible. 
totally agree. But also, you know, we're, we're also being told that humans are about to have more leisure time than ever before. And I think the death of the automobile would assume that the joy of driving is not passed on down generations or the joy of driving somehow just dissipated. And maybe virtual reality can replace that to a large extent. Maybe we can have sort of four-dimensional experiences where the chair moves, whatever. But maybe there is still a place for people that want to have that joy of driving. It just can't be in cities. And I would come back with the classic designer's response. It all depends on the constraints that you put on these organizations. Uh, You know, when it comes to how imaginatively they can explore these new opportunities. But I want to come back to your 18-year-olds because your 18-year-olds don't really have any of that joy of driving. And I will not say that I never had joy of driving. I've rented a number of cars on this trip and I rented a RAV4 when we were in Las Vegas and I had a great time driving it. It was a fun car to drive. And and so there were moments when I go, oh, this is a nice experience and it has been thoughtfully rendered, but it's not something that I'm seeking out. I'm grateful when it gets delivered, right? It's that moment of surprise and expectation. And I suspect that there are a lot of people who are younger than me, like your 18-year-olds, who fall into this. And so are we, if, if this is... Uh, cultural and it's a secular change and it's a broader change where when we were young, everyone was into the driving experience and now it's it's the exception rather than the rule. I don't know whether it's the exception. I mean, so I have a 20-year-old. Let me, let me pull out another child. The 20-year-old is about to learn how to drive stick on a 2005 Mazda Miata MX-5 because that's a lovely one to drive stick on. So she can go to Sydney and drive a 2005 M3 convertible BMW. Fabulous car to drive, awesome gear shift. And I say to her, you love driving. She drives a lot for work. Um, Do you want to drive shift? Because you might as well learn how to use a gear stick while they still exist. And she's like, I'm all over it. And I think, you know, some of us love accelerating at the lights. Some of us love hitting a corner, gearing down and then smashing out of it. I mean, you know what? It's like surfing. It's like anything else. Here's a question for you, Sal. Like, how much of that accelerating away at the lights that that we enjoyed when we were younger was really to do with showing off to our mates who are in the back seat or beating the person in the car next to us. And this is where we get to this really interesting idea of, of, of cars as being an externalization of our personality, right? And for a really long time, cars were one of the most kind of flexible ways to do that. Really expensive, but pretty flexible. You could choose your color, you could choose your exhaust system, you could choose what music you had blaring out the windows, right? The reality is we have much more flexible, much cheaper ways to externalize our understanding of ourselves these days than a car, right? So yes, at a pure physical level, there is the rush of acceleration. There is the skill of driving a car. But when it comes to the role that the car played in defining our social interactions with other people, our phones do that far more effectively and much cheaper. There is so much here. And fortunately, the three of us have nine more episodes to dive into all of this in detail. And in the next episode of The Next Billion Cars, we'll take a look at the topic on everyone's lips, driverless vehicles. Are they real? Are they completely overhyped? And when they finally get here, what will they mean for transport? That's the next time on The Next Billion Cars. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Minx, and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. 
For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci. And Sally Dominguez. And Drew Smith. Thanking you for listening. <laughs>